Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. What is up on a Monday? I'm Brian Scott Rippey. My co-conspirator, as always, is Michael Borky. We appreciate you hanging out with this stopping by on this Monday, May. I don't even, couldn't even find the date. No, not, the not a chance. 11th edition of the Rebel Report podcast. And uh, this weekend, maybe I'm just being overly optimistic. I felt like a normal human being this weekend. I went home to Jackson to do the whole Mother's Day thing, but I played golf with a couple of friends on Saturday. And then we didn't even end up going to a restaurant, but they had, we were, there were other people we were meeting that were not, uh, like that were already at a restaurant on the reservoir, uh, out, like out by the, or I should say on the reservoir, pretty much on it, that we were going to go meet, but then they left and wanted to go like grill burgers or whatever. So we didn't do that. But even just the thought and idea of being able to do something normal and then go sit in a restaurant was, uh, just got me fired up like I, that's how bad things have gotten it's just the idea of possibly going to a restaurant i was pretty fired up about that but uh <laughs> grilled out watched the ufc we had live sports on it just like obviously things not normal but this felt less uh quarantine than the last two months have i just made up a new word if that makes any sense at all it felt more normal-ish yeah a little bit and i think part of that had to do with the fact that there was live sports on maybe um and not like a European soccer league or Korean baseball. Like, that counts, but not really. I mean, we don't care about Korean baseball. As as cool as the novelty is of it and unique of a story, we're not getting up at 4 a.m. to watch Korean baseball. It, it doesn't impact us at all. UFC putting on fights, I think that matters more for us. Yeah, absolutely. And it was awesome. I watched it always pretty much anytime there's like a major UFC fight now. I try to watch it in some form. Like, I, I really don't like. I bought it this weekend, and uh, like, I used my ESPN Plus account, and then had like the group Venmo me or whatever. But like, like I, a couple times we've illegally streamed it. Like, there's a lot of ways to watch it. it buying it's expensive every time. But like, I pretty much watched. Like, I'm pretty sure like most of the main UFC cards of the last six seven months. Uh, just. I guess either from boredom or just by happenstance or from this one, this was just, there was nothing else on. And then correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure we have more fights uh, Wednesday and Saturday. I'm pretty sure they have a card on the 13th and the 16th. But uh, this, it was, it was, I thought it was good. I didn't think it suffered much from the lack of fans. You could actually kind of like hear the punches and the effects of just how hard those dudes hit each other with no fans in the, in the seats. Like I thought that part was cool. Uh, Everyone was acting like that was some new revelation, but I watched the one in Brazil the first weekend the world shut down that didn't have fans in the stands, and it was similar, and I thought it was equally as awesome, but I guess this was a bigger deal because it was on U.S. soil. No one had had sports in two months, but I didn't think it suffered that much for not having fans in the stands. Uh, Greg Hardy won his fight legally this time. Uh, He actually beat the guy (laughs) and uh, did it within the confines of the rules, so congrats to him. But uh, I thought it was pretty sweet overall. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and the whole—I've seen a few people say that they wouldn't like games without fans in the stands. Like it, it would affect their viewing. It took like sixty seconds for me to not even realize it. You know, I mean, you notice it at first, and then the people around the octagon had masks on. That was a little weird. But once, like things started actually happening, I almost forgot that they weren't fighting in front of people because. You're, you're watching the game to watch the sport itself, not to watch the crowd. So it took like 60 seconds for that to not be weird. 
I think it's going to be different in hoops. I think we could get by with it in baseball because even just watching the Korean Baseball League, as you mentioned, that no one actually really gives a damn about just the novelty of it being back is a cool story. Whatever. I think baseball could get away with it just because there's so many games. You know, unless you're in a huge market, it's not huge crowds a lot of the time anyway. Just because, you know, it's an average, you know, your average May or June game in a 162 game slate and a 81 game home slate. Hoops is where it's going to be different because like the crowd, whether you want to like, like I think it plays more of a factor in playoff series than people want to admit. Like you can tell like not other than like the, the effort on the defensive end and really just kind of in general, the, the two distinguishing factors in the play in playoff series and regular season games is that. And then the crowd, whether it's like the on brand t-shirts or whatever, just the crowd in a, in a NBA playoff series is incredibly different than the regular season. So I feel like that's going to be weird, and that is going to kind of suck if and when it does come back. But, I mean, it's better than nothing. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I am kind of looking forward to, like, a massive, like, posterizing dunk, and the guy, like, flexes his muscles and yells to no one. <laughs> yeah, no, it's going to be weird. It seriously is. And like, but... But the thing about that is, is you make a good point. It's like UFC, it was cool because you could hear the punches and you could kind of hear a little bit of the corner guys yelling strategy and stuff. To where in basketball, you don't really gain much by having like silence. Like like Kevin Durant, or I guess that's a terrible example because Kevin Durant is injured. But like, it's like Harden going up for a dunk in a playoff series or Westbrook and then yelling. Like that's going to be kind of lame. Like it's going to be kind of a bummer because there's going to be no yeah. crowd to feed off of and all that. But again... Better than nothing. But, yeah, the UFC was awesome. I'm not going to, like, pretend to talk strategy. I thought the last fight was pretty sweet. Um, so that guy that won, what? how do you say his last name? Uh, oh, I don't remember. I only yeah, watched I the ones that were free. The oh, oh, so I watched it all the way up <laughs> to the main card. Geth, I don't know how you say it. He was a fairly – not he wasn't a huge underdog, but I looked at it just from, like, a, a gambling perspective. I think he was, like, plus 190 to win the fight at the end. So, like – a fairly decent sized underdog, but uh, it was a good fight. Like I said, Hardy won within the confines of the rules. So, class act to uh, injure the guy uh, and play by the rules instead of uh, whatever happened the last time I watched Greg Hardy fight. Uh, Hardy is sick. like the those guys were so huge. That guy had Hardy had five inches on the guy who was fighting. They were both around two hundred forty pounds, if I'm not mistaken. Hardy is six five two forty. They almost uh, so. Where we watched the fight, I was at a buddy's house with a bunch of people, and he is just married. So, like, he and his wife have been living in that house, I think, for, like, a week or two. Um, but, like, his his wife is, like, they look kind of fat. And I, I was kind of looking at him. I was like, yeah, they do, which is kind of weird to say of an NFL defensive end. But, like, seeing two guys that huge in an octagon, they do look kind of tubby. Yeah, a little bit. But, um I I guess you can kind of tell the difference from what should have been an elite-level football player. I know he played in the NFL, but I'm talking a guy that, if his head was screwed on straight, would have been a mainstay in that league and uh, somebody that's just a heavyweight UFC fighter. Yeah, no, uh, Physically, no just kidding. look very different. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no kidding. It was uh, But anyway, it was entertaining stuff. It was kind of cool to have uh, sports back. And I think we buried the lead here when we just dug right into UFC. I think the important thing, and it'll be a little bit different in team sports, is, and I can't remember the guy's name. I could look it up, but I really just don't feel like it because I'm standing over a coffee pot currently. But uh, the, the uh, 
one of their fighters on the undercard tested positive for the coronavirus the night before and not everything shut down. Like I actually, I'm not even, what did they do about that? Did they find a replacement or did that fight just not happen? If I remember correctly, they just ended the fight. Um, But that, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up because Dana White uh, has received a ton of, uh, we can call it online criticism uh, from the media. Like, like he has been, they've called him crazy and tone deaf and all that stuff, right? And he's just said, hey, we're going to keep fighting. They fought in Brazil. They're doing this. They're buying an island. They're just going to keep on keeping on. And he's received a ton of criticism. But this weekend was a, a big success for them. And it shows that if you push through the criticism, in reality, uh, your fighters are going to want to fight. Your athletes are going to want to to participate because that's what gets them paid. And also people are going to watch. So them powering through the criticism, just like the NFL did and Roger Goodell, it has been a complete win for everybody involved. Like all the people around the, the octagon had masks on. They administered 1,200 tests before that fight was put on. So they knew everybody involved was not coronavirus positive. And they put on a good show. And that's what the NFL has done, even though it's a little bit different since everything's been digital. But in spite of the criticism of free agency, you remember, free agency was a lot more criticized than the draft and the schedule release, but they powered through that. Said, we don't think that's the the norm of opinion, is that we're being tone deaf by going through it. And then they gave us storylines, and everybody talked about it and paid attention, and Brady goes to Tampa, and it's all this big deal. And then the draft is coming up, and oh, how are they going to do it? And this isn't right, and teams were complaining because they couldn't evaluate players the same way they usually would. And the NFL decides, you know what, screw it, we're just going to keep pushing on, we're going to have a draft, goes off without a hitch. And then a schedule release, you get the few people that are like, oh, this is dumb because you know the season's not going to start on time. They push through it, release the schedule, gets talked about more than a schedule release ever has. And they keep pushing through because the, the critics for... UFC and the critics for the NFL were in the minority and the vast majority of people are appreciating them going through the effort to do this and do it safely. So if September rolls around and there's no vaccine, which is extremely likely, and the NFL decides to play, they're going to get criticized, but they're going to get rewarded as well because they already have the contingencies in place. Uh, Testing by then is going to be so widespread and rampant and available. They're going to test these guys at every level if you are positive, you're just going to have to sit out. Like That's how it's going to work. But they're going to press on, and they're going to be rewarded for it, just like UFC was this weekend, just like NASCAR will be this upcoming weekend, just like golf will be when they put on this event this coming weekend, and then the Tiger Phil thing, which I'm not all that excited for, if we're being honest. The weekend after, ratings are going to be huge, and they're going to get rewarded for pushing on past the criticism, doing it safely, of course, but still putting on a show. Yeah, so his name was Souza, and they he tested positive. He and two of his corner men, uh, all three asymptomatic. He drove. He'd been training in Orlando. Drove up to Jacksonville for the fight. Uh, obviously, got tested, and then he apparently notified USC that he believes a family member may have tested positive for coronavirus, and that may where he, that may be where he got it from. But they basically just pulled that fight from the card. They still had the support from the Florida State Athletic Commission to continue on with the fight. And that was really the key there. So they basically pulled that from the card. He was sent home, quarantined, whatever. And the fight went on. 
Um, I think a telling quote here is this is an executive director of the Florida State Athletic Commission named Patrick Cunningham. It says, we're very impressed with your entire process. You have our full support. We have no reservations about this event moving forward tomorrow. We think this is the template for combat sports moving forward. That's kind of a telling quote. It also probably helps us in a state like Florida that overall, despite some of the criticism has gotten, has handled it pretty well open back up beaches. Um, if there's a state that's kind of chucked the criticism of opening back up outside of Georgia, uh, Florida is definitely one of them. So it helps that it was there. But the important piece of that was, one, it was awesome and people loved live sports again. Haven't seen the betting numbers, but I imagine uh, they were through the roof. And two, it provided a blueprint of what to do when someone comes back. And the, obviously the looming question when leagues come back is what happens when someone tests positive. It's going to be a little bit harder to do with bigger entities like the right. NBA, MLB, but at least we got a blueprint there. But all in all, a pretty solid weekend. That was uh, very much enjoyable to watch on a uh, Saturday night. Um, outside of that, I uh, uh, I pretty much am taking one for the team here. Like, uh, so the uh, I couldn't really hide the whole haircut thing with a hat, but basically I figured out my role at social gatherings now is uh, – uh, there's no way, like once everyone saw the back of my head, they turned to that there's no way they could look like a bigger asshole. So it seemed to free everyone up. So uh, not a hero, but nice. if you want to call me, won't disagree. Yeah, yeah. Just doing the public, doing the public a service. Thought my parents were going to be nice about it, but my mom said, don't take your hat off. And my dad suggested I go get some vitamins. So uh, got that going for me right now. But uh, yeah, all in all, it, again, Things felt a lot more normal than they have the past couple weekends. Uh, I wrote down a bunch of random notes. We'll call this segment uh, creatively Rippy's Notepad. I pretty much just took notes from the entire time of the uh, last dance thing and wrote pretty much everything that popped in my head. Did you watch it last night? No, I have not yet. So uh, just take the lead and fire away. Without a doubt, it's the best two yet, I think. Uh, and I, if you listen to this show, I haven't said that about every episode. I thought the Rodman thing was kind of repetitive um, and that was a story that it, they, they've told before. They did a documentary on him already. So it and not everybody watched it, of course. But if you've been following along at all, they told the Rodman story before. So it was kind of redundant. Yeah. And I, I know I don't want to steal uh, steal takes here. But Ryan Russillo and Bill Simmons had a what I thought was a fascinating take on Rodman to where like, hey, actually, this guy's not that interesting. And all Bill he, got ripped does, for it, but he's right. He's right. All that dude does is dye his hair and then says, you don't understand me. It's like, actually, he just really wants attention, which, again, a lot of us want. Like, it's not, not I'm not like, like, like indicting the guy's character, but like it, we were all particularly someone who didn't grow up and live with Rodman. We were always like, it, it feels like it's always sold as he's this like, you know, almost mythical figure that's just like larger than life and kind of hard to understand. It's like, actually, this guy just dyes his hair funny colors and uh, lashes out when he wants attention. But anyway... Uh, I thought last night was the best two by far. I will get to my notes, uh, but we need to take a break real quick and remind you. Podcast brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. I grilled out on Saturday, but unfortunately I was in Jackson, and uh, Greg does not yet have a plane to deliver to me in Jackson. Uh, Are you still down here? No, no, no. I'm back in Oxford. I uh, went home Saturday, did Mother's Day yesterday, and then uh, hopped back up. But – Go check him out. It's grilling season. The weather's been perfect. I had fun grilling Saturday night. I wish I had been grilling an LB steak. Honestly, if I'd have known beforehand, I'd have probably gotten by and taken one down with me to Jackson. But go check him out. 
Uh, no better way to social distance than to sit outside, throw something awesome on the grill. Greg can help you select a delicious cut of meat, whether it's steak, chicken, whatever you're feeling, he can help you out. They've got grill packs, ribeye sausages, all kinds of stuff, daily specials. Go check him out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Um, anyway, so here are some of the uh, – I need to pull it up on my phone. Here's some. So last night's episode basically got into after the 1993 season – Jordan retiring to go play baseball and then it kind of dipped in all the way pretty much through the 96 season the second well first full season he came back when they won the NBA title and to me this is the most interesting part of Jordan's story I mean because he was only 31 when this happened can you imagine if Kevin Durant uh today or tomorrow was actually like, hey, F this. I'd actually like to go play for Double A Binghampton. Brooklyn's cool, but I don't want to do basketball anymore. Like, that's the equivalent of that. And after a while, yeah, there was a media circus, but he kind of, like, the story kind of got buried after a while. Like, it just became, yeah, Michael's playing baseball. Like, today, that would be nonstop on ESPN for 180 straight days, 120 games, however long he played. That would be the, I feel like that would be the number one story all the time. But just, Absolutely wild that that just kind of casually happened to Michael Jordan at age 31. It won three titles in a row. It was just like, to hell with this, I'm uh, I'm out of here. Like It's the, the, it's the sign of the media insane. cycle now. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Um, we, bear, we just burn things to the ground. Like, there's a difference between taking a, a big story and spending like a full three-hour show on it and then finding a new angle for the next day and then phasing it out if it's a really big story like that i get that but when it's the same thing for three hours a day for three weeks we've got a problem and that's what we do now it's the same damn story that we yell not we what we do at work but sports media talks about and yells about on get up every morning and we spend weeks on the same shit it's crazy Yeah, so that so it starts out with his, you know, the '93 season ending. Him, so basically, it kind of like it kind of. I, I like the way they set it up. It kind of like it, it directly addressed the whole was it a gambling suspension thing head on. Obviously, Michael's father um, shot while pulled over on the side of the road in North Carolina. So it, it kind of shows you that he was actually kind of le- leaning towards uh, retiring. He was kind of tired of the media scrutiny and all that. He didn't feel like he had much left to give because he didn't really have like a rival. Like he just won three straight titles and probably knew he could win a fourth without much issue. He didn't have like another great rival. Just didn't feel like he had much left like to accomplish. And then and then his father passes away. And that really just kind of messed him up and kind of not sent him over the edge, but pushed him over the edge of, yeah, I'm going to retire and play baseball like that. That really tilted the scales toward the baseball thing. Um, I never really, like, to be honest, like, being somewhat, like, ignorant to the situation in terms of, like, me not living through it the first time, like, I'm not, I'm not conspiracy theory guy, but ones that sound reasonable, I could be like, yeah, I could see it, where I don't necessarily know what I believe, but the whole gambling suspension thing after seeing, hearing and seeing everything last night and then reading into it, it just really doesn't, like hold water. It doesn't pass the smell test at all, in my opinion, because he had been telling people he wanted to do to re- like he was thinking about retiring before all of this ever happened. Like, obviously, he was really close to his father. His father loved baseball. 
Like you could see how that happens and the way people grieve and, and things like that. And number one, I forget the gentleman's name who he worked in the NBA office, if I'm not mistaken, but he was like, yes, David Stern, the ultimate capitalist wanted to suspend the most valuable player in the history of basketball for a year so they could less, make less money for the next year and a half. Makes perfect sense. And that was when I was kind of like, yeah, that really just doesn't hold up at all. No, it's one of those things I like to apply a rule that I created in shows that I'm hosting, especially with listeners who say something like that. I'll say, say it out loud. Michael Jordan retired from the NBA because of a gambling problem that they really forced him into a year and a half long suspension. So he played baseball instead. When you say it out loud, it sounds different, doesn't it? It's a lot crazier when you really like voice it to somebody else. Say it out loud. Does this make sense? No, probably not. Okay, thank you. I just accidentally deleted my notes off the notes app. So that's nice. Can't, can't you, uh, like, is there not an undo button or something on there? I don't know. I, uh, it doesn't appear that. <laughs> nope, that thing is gone. This is like why we this. get paid the big bucks, man. Yeah, gone like a freight train. Anyway, but I can remember a lot of them. But, yeah, so that was that was pretty insane. Uh, just like It's and always then, been insane. You know, yeah, it, it just... An 18-month-long suspension for gambling. But, yeah, come on right back. And in the meantime, go play base. It just It's never added up. Uh, and another thing that I found that I wrote down that I found kind of crazy about that whole thing uh, was how mainstream it got. Like, Michael's father passes away, and not too long after the stories start coming out. Like, I mean, it's in newspaper headlines. They're showing newspaper headlines. Could a son's like like is Michael's gambling or like could his son's like transgressions or whatever have to do with his father's death? That got very mainstream, and it was basically just all a hundred percent speculation. And Sam Smith, the guy who wrote the Jordan Rules book and was at the Chicago Tribune for forever, was kind of the one guy who was like, "Hey, this is actually bullshit. There's really no evidence of all. I can't believe this is like happening." But the and Bill Simmons made a good point about this is like. The 90s were when you kind of first saw like tabloid media and like the kind of the more like TMZ type stuff to where like the the other side of these athletes get profiled to where it's like you know Larry Bird got in a bar fight and sprained his thumb in a playoff series and the guy sued him and that never really got out until after the fact just because it was a different world then. So Jordan was really the first kind of like scrutinized athlete in like tabloid media and I think it kind of just went off the rails initially with that just because there was no evidence of that at all. And it just felt wildly irresponsible that like most mainstream media just kind of took that and ran with it, despite there not being really any actual evidence of all. I was, I was pretty taken aback by that. But again, tabloid media was kind of in its infancy stages, and it seemed like Jordan was the first target, subject, whatever word you want to use. And uh, I think that's part of the reason why he got fed up with all the shit. It, it, I mean... To me, that was completely ridiculous, and he was right about like right in being frustrated with that. Yeah, I'll take your word for it. I, I need to watch it, man. I, I don't remember much. I've tried to read a lot about it, but um, the gambling thing has never made sense to me. But it's still it's a wild story. Like you said at the very beginning of this conversation. Like Kevin Durant, although Jordan's star power was far greater than Kevin Durant's, but the point still stands. Uh, imagine somebody trying to do that today. Like Patrick Mahomes, that's a good example. 
because Jordan's star power was like that of an elite-level NFL player and beyond, for sure. That's like Patrick Mahomes now, just winning a Super Bowl, um, just hanging it up to go play hockey. Found my notes. I'm a genius. Anyway, you know, I, I, turn, I totally agree. The, uh, but it just, it was, it was wild to me. And like, you'll, you'll see it when you watch it. It's just, it, it blew my mind that, you know, big J journalism and all of that. And I'm not necessarily blaming people because I, I didn't live in that time. I didn't necessarily understand the day to day stuff, but like just them running with that story with no evidence while like my, like the, the wound is very much still fresh and open. Like Michael grieving his father was, uh, was just insane to me. I just, uh, I'd never really like I never knew it was that mainstream. Like I thought it was just conspiracy theory guy on whatever the 1990s form of a message board was, but it was very mainstream at the time. It's on the you know NBC Sports and you know newspaper clippings of. Would like- that fly today? Because uh, people talk, and I see why. It, it, modern journalism, especially sports journalism, is is very different um, than it was back then. Far less newspapers, more blog type. Um, would that fly today, though? That kind of—I don't know. Because in some ways, we're like less responsible than ever in media, and more stuff flies. As far as like mainstream, I don't think so. Uh, just because we are, per, like, as a society, we are just kind of more sensitive to things in general. So I don't think so. But the other side of the coin here is, is there's I think without a doubt we are more irresponsible media wise just because there's more outlets like mainstream media has never been more like unclear in terms of what that means or traditional media and all of that. There's so many more outlets. I think it would happen, but I'm just not really sure. Uh, I am just not really sure. Like, like what would the reaction to that be? I feel like there'd be more pushback, but it would that stop it from happening. Probably not. Yeah, that's a good point. The outrage it- there is more, and, and although Twitter is not real life, there's more opportunity to shame stories like that away from the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good way to put it. Like uh, that column yesterday that that goofy poker guy from the, from the Washington Post wrote about how all the coronavirus did was expose that we need less sports, not more. Yeah, so I, I saw that yesterday. That's complete non sequitur, but whatever. So that's Norman Chad, and like he has a history of writing satirical columns. Like I think in the '90s, he wrote a bit of NFL and NBA satire stuff, and like I got people all up in arms. But was that meant to be taken seriously? I didn't click on it because it just made me roll my eyes. But when I figured out the author was Norman Chad, I was like, well, that can't be a hundred percent serious. I uh, I saw that ruffles and feathers. I don't think he was. That had to have been tongue-in-cheek, and I'm saying this admittedly without reading it just because, again, collective eye roll, not giving it a click. No, I didn't give it one either, so I don't know, but I did see, um, like, Scott Van Pelt and John Butchergross and these guys also, like, negatively react to it. So I figured they may have actually read it and then determined that it it was worthy of getting roasted. So I don't know. Either way, like, you got to read the room, man. Like, you can't write a satirical column like that right now, even if that's what you were trying to do. Like, read the room. That You shouldn't have done that. But anyway, um, I don't even remember what my original point was to bring that uh, up. I'll just, go to my, I'll just go to my next note. Yeah, go to the next thing, because I, I don't remember why I brought that up other than... Um, 
so no yeah. spoilers anyway, here, but I, I I found it hilarious. So obviously the one the one gripe I've had with this, and I think most people have had, but I understand why it's happening. Them com- constantly going back and forth from 1998 to some other like period in time is confusing. But when the premise of your documentary is, is a bunch of untapped, never before seen footage from 1998, and you're also trying to tell the whole story, it's not easy to thread that needle. So I'm not like knocking them for it, but it is kind of confusing. But that being said, at the beginning of it, 1998, they opened the they opened the episode seven uh, of the doc with a very young Craig Sager asking Bulls uh, GM, uh, what Jerry Krause, uh, like, are you surprised? It's late April. I think they're gearing up for a playoff run. This is again the last dance. Like this is the last season. Uh, and he says, "Have you been surprised at the, at the team's togetherness, despite all of the backstabbing going on?" And you could tell it was the first question of the press conference that day. And of course, Jerry Krause takes incredible offense to it. Is like, "There's no backstabbing." Basically, just chastised the reporter, which is Craig Sager, for asking the question. And then he walks off, so he doesn't take any more questions. And there's a couple of reporters sitting there in the scrum, and you can hear them go, "Great job, Craig." Like you did it like, as if that was not the first time he'd pissed him off and that was happened, which is just kind of funny now because, you know, Craig Sager is an absolute legend. It was a fair question, even though he asked it in such a harsh way. But like just in the day to day media scrum, he pissed everyone else off because the guy left. I found that kind of funny. But anyway, Craig Sager, R.I.P. Let's see. Oh, the uh the, when he does go play baseball, the classic, like, the the media scrutiny of, like, high and mighty sports writers saying he's disgr- – like, there was a SI article about how he was disgracing the sport, and they never interviewed Jordan for the article. I just found that amazing. But at the same time, the dude hit 202 and drove in 50 runs and had a 13-game hit streak in double-A baseball after 14 years of not playing. Like, am I the only one that thinks that's actually, like – really incredibly impressive like that that is wild to me and um, there are high level college baseball players that couldn't go into double a and hit 202 so that's another like note. the do next you know, year do you know why that happened do you know why he went straight to double a i'd figured the, it would have been for just because it's michael jordan and he could sell tickets but well yes kind of you're on the right track there the bulls owner reinsdorf who obviously owns the white Sox, and that's who michael signed with said we put him in double a for the sole reason that uh, rookie ball and single A facilities could not handle the media that was accompanying Michael Jordan everywhere he went. He was like, <laughs> we had to throw him in double A. The pl- other places were too small. And then Hoover <laughs> Metropolitan Stadium shout out uh, got uh, a lot of airtime in there because that's where Jordan played his games, which is kind of crazy because I think I knew that but never put two and two together. But as many times as we've been to Hoover Met, like just Michael Jordan playing a season there is actually kind of cool. But, uh, yeah, he went to double-A because rookie ball and single-A facilities were simply just too small. It couldn't couldn't contain the Jordan uh, circus, for the lack of a better word. Because uh, Reinsdorf was like, yeah, we don't take any of our college prospects or high school prospects and stick them in double-A. Like, they go to rookie ball or at best, like, you know, lower or single-A or high single-A. But with Michael, who hasn't played baseball since he was 17 and, you know, jumps back into it 31 – we had to put him in the. We had to put him in double A because the media thing was too small. I thought that was interesting. Uh, the other note that I had was uh, Michael Jordan was almost a scab, and the reason he kind of came back to basketball was because of the strike. I never put that together. That had never been explained to me that way. So they had a strike in 1995 or whatever, 
And Michael Jordan got asked to cross the picket line because they were going to use replacement players and go play at the major league level. And he said no. And so during the strike, he started working out with the Bulls again. And then, of course, comes back late in that 95 season. I never like like those two things like like influencing each other. Never like that never meshed to me as someone who was not old enough to obviously to remember it. I was, you know, a couple months old at the time. I uh, I didn't uh, I didn't know that. Did you? No, I didn't. And as I'm looking at uh, Google images of him in a baseball uniform, I get the article from Sports Illustrated. Michael Jordan versus Tim Tebow. Who was the better baseball player? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> really did some research into that take. That was some deep digging. Some of that. Fill up the 3 o'clock hour with that today. That's Anyway, unbelievable. Oh, if, uh, if Tate's press conference never ends. Um, but I didn't know that. And so I guess logic would tell you if baseball doesn't go on strike, maybe this documentary is not even airing. You know, I mean, maybe he never goes back to basketball. And maybe I, he's I was not- about to bring that up. I think maybe he eventually does because at the same time he's 31. But you bring up a good point. There's no way to know that. That's just me guessing. I have no evidence to support that. But does he ever come back and does this ever happen? Or is it three-time NBA champion Michael Jordan? That might be what it is. And so how would he be remembered today? A hell of a lot differently. I mean, he's still MJ, and like he, you know, he didn't win three he titles. He transcended sports. Yeah, even he transcended sports even before that. But I mean, it's definitely different. Obviously, I mean, you're taking I away. I feel like he titles. ended up being a pretty good baseball player too, though. Oh yeah. Well, Reinsdorf said at age thirty, uh, he said that he it's his belief, and granted, I, he's probably not going to bash Jordan here, but. He said he believed he would eventually have gotten to the major league level. I don't know if I necessarily buy that. He's hitting 202 in double A. Incredibly impressive, as I just mentioned earlier, despite uh, the cynical media saying he was disgracing baseball and all that, which is just kind of hilarious. Uh, that was a Sports Illustrated cover story, and that's why Michael stopped talking to anyone from Sports Illustrated. Uh, and they never interviewed him for it. But anyway, despite that you being think you would at least make a phone call, things. right? Isn't yeah, that like I mean, journalism 101? Yeah, I mean, if you're launching, which I don't even know this could be classified as a hit piece because you're talking about him playing baseball, not some scandal. You're supposed to at least call him for comment. I mean, that's just kind of kind of rule one there. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just I found that whole thing to be wild, and it was incredibly predictable that it made people very unhappy that Michael Jordan tried to go play baseball. Um, this These episodes, when he comes back to basketball these episodes are uh and him losing to penny hardaway and horace grant and uh and a young Shaq is pretty wild that next year he just really didn't have it he was wearing number 45 like he was still working himself back into shape the magic team was actually really good like i think they should probably deserve more credit than they got for winning that series in 1995 but uh like you remember at the right before this came out like jordan psych was quoted saying like everyone's going to think I'm a bad guy after watching this, like that type of thing. Yeah. Like I, I get where he's like, I, like, it seems predictable now because it last night's stuff really kind of brought out like the pettiness and like just how minor slights were like major things to him. I mean, there's a, and at one point I wrote down, uh, like he maybe stopped pissing Jordan off. So at the end of it, when they're playing the Sonics in like the 96 finals or whatever, George Carl, 
was coaching the Sonics and he ran into Michael at a restaurant and didn't speak to him because they were playing each other. So Michael went out and just absolutely destroyed them. And at some point, like at that point, you know, this guy takes any minor slight as an incredible, like just like a motivating factor. So maybe stop pissing this guy off. Like, did that, did that ever come up in conversation with anyone that played Michael Jordan? Like, <laughs> Hey, maybe let's stop making this guy angry. Cause you know, he's a psycho and he takes everything. I mean, there's a clip in there and this was maybe my favorite part of the documentary. There's a dude, a young rookie or young player for the Washington Bullets who were just absolutely terrible. And I can't remember this guy's name. The story would be better if I could remember it, but I didn't write it down. Something Smith. And it's a random regular season game. And he scores 35 and the Bullets win. And Michael had just a terrible game. It was one of those nights he just couldn't make a shot go in. And he walked up to Jordan after the game, wrapped his arm around him and said, good game, Michael, and walked off. Well, bad news for that guy, it was a back-to-back to where they played the Bullets the next night in Washington, and Jordan just was absolutely stewing about just that tiny little comment and decided he was going to score how many points that guy scored in a half, and he scored 36 points and a half and then made it his mission to not only score on him, but just pretty much absolutely embarrass this poor rookie. Um, and just sit like that. Like, I mean, just tiny little slights, like, just drove him to absolutely want to just absolutely tear people apart. I mean, you've seen it since, but the coach thing from the last couple episodes, the four and, or five and six, like, just tiny slights drove this dude to places that I've never seen or heard of before. I, I found that to be pretty insane. That is pretty wild, man. And that's the... Uh... I saw the Boston Celtics writer for the Athletics say something, and, and of course, again, I didn't watch last night, but say something like, you didn't have to be mean to people to win basketball games, but that kind of an edge creates athletes like him. No, you're exactly always right. feeling this- slighted, all, taking everything as disrespect and, and motivating yourself to beat the brakes off of everybody you played. That mentality is what made him the greatest champion in the sport. That's why still today he sells more shoes than anybody else because he was a relentless, just nasty, just son of a bitch. You know, the way he played basketball and the way he competed is why he's so great. Yeah, he could have been a nice guy and still been great and won titles, but that edge that he had is what made him still what he is to this day. And it, I don't want to do the LeBron versus Jordan debate, but oh, if LeBron has more stop of that right edge, there. I have to, uh, I have to interject. <laughs> I was about to say, you want to see the other side of this coin, a tweet that just flashed in front of me, skip Bayless. LeBron is too nice of a guy to lift and drive a team the way Jordan did to six championships and six tries with six finals MVPs more on undisputed. Yeah. See, I'm not watching that, but it, there, <laughs> there is a difference. And that's why he was so great is because he took everything as a slight because everybody disrespected him. That that chip on his Tom Brady still has a chip on his shoulder. Six-time Super Bowl winner, greatest quarterback of all time, married to a supermodel. He still thinks people don't respect him. He still plays with a chip on his shoulder. That's why he's in Tampa so he can prove everybody wrong. But who's he got to prove? Nothing, but though guys like them are just wired differently and that's what makes him great. No, you don't have to be a jerk to win. No, you don't you don't have to be a jerk to be great. But that creation of enemies for Jordan made him exactly what he is. Yeah, I agree. And the outline last night is like he was a total just complete, I mean, D-I-C-K to people 
uh, like to his teammates. And like there was, I mean, you mentioned there, like there was a, like they kept mentioning there was a fear factor, Jordan. Like that one guy, one of his teammates, I can't remember who it was. It may have been BJ Armstrong. Like he got asked if Jordan was a nice guy. And he goes, was he a nice guy? No. But then they, every single one of them appreciate it now. They're like, we understand, like we hated him in the moment. But we understand now, like 20 years later, 25 years later, why he was the way he was and what he was trying to do and how he was trying to basically mold each iteration of one of those teams into a championship level team. And so, yeah, it was like, was he a bad teammate? I don't know. He was definitely an asshole teammate. If that's, if, if you can even put that into a category, but uh, that definitely showed, I don't like him any less for it. Honestly, it makes him more fascinating and more interesting to me, but like, Last night's episodes in particular, you could tell why he made the comments beforehand that people people are going to think I'm a bad guy. He was, uh, I mean, he, he, there was a, I forget, they, they drafted a rookie in like 96 or something like that. And I need to find the guy's uh, name. Um, oh, Scott Burrell. And Jordan, like, knew that they were going to need him at some point in that year and, like, wanted him to be great and just absolutely rode his ass in practice. Just absolutely, like, relentlessly. And he was basically too nice of a guy to ever do anything back. Like, MJ spent, like, half the year trying to get this guy to fight him. Like, in terms of, like, hey, I'm standing up to the bully and he just wouldn't do it. He'd just smile and take it. But he was just kind of relentless. And then they got into the incident where Jordan punched Steve Kerr, like, he was just kind of a gigantic asshole, but like he knew exactly what he was doing, and it was calculated. I think the closest thing we've seen to that since is Kobe Bryant in terms of that mentality and what he does to teammates and all that. Not an easy guy to play with, but can you really question the results? No, they're, they're unquestionable, and that's the point. It, it's like, and you can use other examples, too. I was listening to a podcast recently that talked about this very subject, about how you don't have to be an ass to— be successful, but if you look at successful people, I mean, how many of them are super nice guys? Look at Bill Belichick, greatest coach to ever live. He sucks. I mean, Bill Belichick sucks as a like to the media in the way he carries himself. Apparently, behind the scenes, he's a nice guy and like has a good personality and stuff, but he sucks. Nick Saban is terrible. Like, listen to his interviews; he's awful. Successful people, at least a lot of them, aren't like pleasant to be around it's just they're just different it doesn't make it right or wrong or, or anything but that's something that uh, they were talking about in context of the Jordan documentary that you shouldn't be surprised that he was that way because the highest level of all of these people are that way I mean fi find find a, a super uber successful athlete that doesn't have some kind of weird edge to him they're all like that the next note I had is, you remember when the first two came out and like we were talking about just what an enjoyable guy Scottie Pippen is? Well, the more and more that comes out, like he doesn't seem like a bad guy, but he looks worse and worse. So last night they got into, in the 95 season, when we were talking about when they won 55 games and they made it to the Eastern Conference semifinals, they rolled through, I believe, the Knicks in the first round. Maybe I'm wrong with that. It doesn't matter. They get to the second round, or no, they're playing the Knicks in the second round. They're down 2-0 in the series. And they're in a game three. They end up losing the series, but they're in a game three that they have to win to just keep the series alive, basically, right? I mean, you're down 3-0 in the second round. You're pretty much toast. Uh, it's a, uh, it is tie game with two seconds left. Um, and Phil Jackson draws up a play for Tony Kukoc instead of Scottie Pippen. And Pippen refuses to go back in the game. It pissed him off so bad. 
So they Kukoc makes the shot. They win the game to get down 2-1. They lose the series, whatever. But in the middle of a game three of a playoff series in the Eastern Conference semifinals, Scottie Pippen got pissed off he wasn't taking the last shot and didn't go back in the game, which was just an absolutely mind-blowing development for me, for someone obviously don't remember much from any of this. That would like I guess that I wrote down that's why Scottie Pippen is a good number two because like honestly like no matter how pissed off Jordan was and there'd never be a scenario where he didn't get the ball late in a game but he's never not going back in crunch time of a playoff game no matter what pissed him off that was a wild development to me but like he just Scottie Pippen had his flaws and like that really kind of tore that team apart afterward I mean like they were some of them were like tearing up in the locker room and stuff but like that was wild to me. I mean, he basically just quit on him in the most crucial moment of the season to that point. That that was insane to me. Man, I can't wait to watch this now. You're you're get you're last week after the Monday podcast where I hadn't watched it yet. I um it took me a little bit. But now you're kind of you're you're peaking my interest here. I just I think these notes are helping. I think I'm going to start doing this very creative segment. Just Rippy takes notes. Um I, I had another note that just says, is he drunk? Because he's tearing up a lot in this episode. And he has whiskey and cigars next to him. I wonder if they interviewed him for so long, he just got a little uh, got a little tipsy during this. That being MJ. Uh, I wonder how often he spends without whiskey and cigars near him, though. Well, I, yeah, I say that. I, I guess <laughs> it technically could be apple juice. I don't know. There's some sort of brown substance in what would appear to be a, li- a liquor glass next to cigar in all of these interviews. But he was talking about something, and I don't even think it was that emotional. But oh, he's talking about just the way he was as a player and a teammate, and he started tearing up. And like, I get it if it was like his dad, obviously very emotional things still. But he started tearing up and like defending himself as a teammate and a player. It's like, dude, you're Michael Jordan. Like, I don't think he actually cares this much about what people think of him. Uh, so I would just wrote down, is he drunk? I don't know. Who's to say? Um, let's see. I only had a couple more of these. Oh, wow. Here's a weird one. So here's a new segment idea. It's called Mind Bleep Monday. It starts with an F. You could probably fill in the middle one. Why do we do numbers in sports? Don't we just need names on the back of our jerseys? What's the point of having numbers? I wrote this down when MJ wore 45 and then he got fined uh, like 25 grand for switching back to 23 in that Magic series that they lost. What's the point of numbers? I get it's for like the stat sheet, but couldn't we do without them now? It's the stat sheet and for the officials. Okay. Why can't the officials use names? I mean, I guess they could, but what if you have, like, a name they can't pronounce or it's hard to see? The numbers just make it everything more efficient. So instead of, like, having to see the back of the guy's jersey, they can say, all right, 45, and then signal it over to the bench. I don't know. I I mean, you feel like a scorekeeper now could know that, but it just makes everything easier to identify for officials and scorekeepers and stuff like that. Okay, fair enough. I just had that written down. Um but yeah, in that Magic series, he comes back, he's wearing 45, um, and then they they lose game one or something, and I think Horace Grant, who obviously former teammate of his, or someone had some comment that like 45 didn't look like 23, so Jordan came back out in 23 the next night and scored like 30-something points. Uh, the misconception is that Jordan sucked in that series, but he had, he averaged 31-7. and seven. That team just wasn't that great. You could tell he wasn't back in basketball shape yet, but... Injury-free Penny Hardaway, Shaq, and Horace Grant uh, were – I mean, that was a hell of a team. I, like I said, I think they should probably get more credit for beating the Bulls that year, uh, even though Jordan had just come back and the baseball excuses and all of that are probably still valid. But that team was was really damn good. And then the last one I had was just Hubie Brown kicks ass. Like, 
there was a broadcast of him from the 1990s, and he still sounds old like he does today. But like, I, how old is that guy? Is he 200? <laughs> Close I to mean, it. Hubie Brown sounded old as dirt back then, and he's just such a legend. Like he's just so consistent with everything. I, I found that funny. But that was my last note. But uh, definitely the best best two episodes yet. I mean, it was awesome from the gambling to the baseball to just kind of coming back and how that happened. It was uh, it was great stuff. But um, yeah, that was about it. Nice. Um, so I've got a, a column up that ran in uh, USA Today papers. Uh, so it's it's a good net thing. But it's about Dak Prescott in, in his contract situation. I'm going to read you a, a graph in this column. There seems to be two sides to this debate. There are those people who understand that Prescott is one of the very best quarterbacks in the league and should be paid as such. And then there are those people who are just wrong. Compelling and rich. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't really know what to do with that. Read that one more time. There seems to be two sides to this debate. There are those people who understand that Prescott is one of the very best quarterbacks in the league and should be paid as such. And then there are those people who dot, dot, dot are just wrong. Who wrote it? Uh, Anthony Stephen Ruiz. I don't know who that is, but uh, it ran in the uh, the the Mississippi paper today as well, apparently. But yeah, um, he wrote a column that's basically like, uh, just pay Dak because um, just just pay him already and just do it, okay, Jerry? Just pay him. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't really understand that one. Um, obviously, it's a more complex situation than that they just. And they're paying a backup four million plus incentives or whatever. Like <laughs> that's just not rooted in reality. That just some seems someone that's like taking this Jack Prescott thing personally and seems upset about it. I mean that like I don't yeah, know what to exactly do with this because it doesn't seem rooted in reality at all. It's one of his points. So he said there are three arguments that people make against him getting a contract. One of them is Ezekiel Elliott makes things easier for him. I've not seen one Fact. person make that argument. Uh, but that's true. I mean, it's it's true. It helps. But that's not why people say you shouldn't pay Dak because he's got Zeke. That's like those are two separate things. Uh, two, he plays behind the best offensive line in the league. Whatever. And then finally, he should take a team friendly deal to help the front office build around him. Here's where how I have he not heard that one yet. Uh, I kind of think he shouldn't take a, a team-friendly deal, but a little less money to help them build it. But here's what he says. He already turned down 30. Is that really team-friendly? <laughs> Good point. Um, he says the last argument that Dak should take a pay cut to help the front office build around him is the silliest. Prescott has been the league's biggest bargain for the last four years. Uh, hello, Patrick Mahomes. Um, or, or, or or Jerry Goff. I mean, that's just how rookie quarterbacks are. If you're a good rookie quarterback on a contending team, you're a hell of a bargain. That's just the way it works. Yeah. Costing the team $2.7 million total. What did the Cowboys do with all that money they saved? Not much. From 2016 to 18, they spent just under $50 million in free agency, one of the lowest numbers in the league over that time. They also paid... Uh, this is me now. They also paid a running back an insane amount of money. They have one of the more expensive offensive lines in football, and also, they just paid Amari Cooper $100 million. What are you talking about? And yep. what did they do with all that money they saved? They have a roster that can win a Super Bowl this year. <laughs> well, what are you talking about? They built a roster that should compete for a Super Bowl this year. What did they do with all that money? They built a really good roster. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, 
I love this. I could do this all day long. Yeah, the last thing I had on the list today was the NFC thing, but I feel like that would be more suitable to go through because that does take some time. We'll just save that for Wednesday. I know the last thing you wanted to get to is uh, Tennessee is signing a bunch of good recruiting at a high level amid a pandemic, and it's pissing people off. I just have trouble getting into recruiting stuff, one, in general, but two, uh, in April, like, I mean, Jeremy Pruitt, Nick Saban Street, this is not really shocking to me. I'll throw in my two cents that I think he's better equipped to actually turn this around on the field than a buffoon like Butch Jones, because Butch Jones also recruited at a high level. But like, to me, it's still kind of a wait and see thing. Like, I mean, I get we talk about Tennessee being in the projected protected class thing, but a program with the national title, with that kind of fan support and where they are in the state and all that should be recruiting at this level, in my opinion. Like, this does not seem that shocking. No, an SEC team with the, with these kind of resources uh, should be recruiting this well. I, I, it's shocking. I won't even use the word shocking. I know exactly what's going on, as is everybody else with a brain. But um, well, hold that, on. Let's, let's unpack it. that for a second. How are you getting cash to these kids without social distancing? I, I'm, while respecting social distancing, like uh, promises, money I mean, orders. People can. I mean, it's got to be all cash. Got to be paperless. Like, do you? I don't know. Like, yeah. how do you do this? Do you like? Fly it in a drone. <laughs> People could still drive cars. I think Tennessee's uh, started to open at least a little bit. Do you disinfect the bag of cash though? Like, do you like, spray it down with Lysol or whatever before you hand it to the kid? Or do you just pay them in like PPE and uh, hand sanitizer? Yeah, because if you get 10K and the 10K gives you Corona, then it seems to me that it may not have been quite worth 10K. Like, just. Just throwing that out there. But anyway. <laughs> so it, it's, it, it is funny to me, though, it, just because the, the way it's talked about nationally is, oh, wow, look at Jeremy Pruitt. It's like, how are they doing this? Does nobody stop and ask, why is it only Tennessee that is getting all of these commits at once while nobody's allowed to see each other? I do think there's a certain momentum factor to it to where these kids see a couple of kids like, yeah. you know, and like, let's go ride that train. So they see a couple of kids commit and then it probably turns into a couple of emotional decisions. I'm going to bet all these kids don't stay as Tennessee commits by December or whatever. Uh, Cause you know, these kids, let me ask you this. If this was Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss or Mike Leach in Mississippi state, what would the reaction be? This will probably piss some people off, but I just, it's just kind of the way it is. I think it would raise more eyebrows uh, if it were Mike Leach in state right now just because Mike Leach's rep is doing yeah. a lot with a little, and he's never been in a place that's been able to recruit at a level that he could at state. So I think that would raise some more eyebrows. And then for whatever reason, just because Kiffin, you know, had, you know, like, yeah, the guy had, I don't even know if this is a good thing, but three different major high-profile jobs by the age of, like, 35, that, and he has such a national brand, it would just seem to be more accepted. Obviously, if Wayne Kiffin did what Hugh Freeze did, uh, you know, Bible verses and pretentiousness aside, it would have been more accepted because who the hell was Hugh Freeze in 2013? So I think it would be a little more accepted. And I think that's, I mean, this is why I have trouble, like the, this, the silliness of college football. One of the things Ole Miss benefited from, from hiring Kiffin, whether it works or not, is if he is able to recruit at this level, for whatever reason to me, it'll be more palatable for the skeptical media than others. And I, it shouldn't sure. be that way. No, it's dumb as hell, but I think it's the truth. It's a really good point. Uh, but to, to put Tennessee's influx uh, into context, so what you see now, 
there are people that that I guess they don't understand recruiting or how it works or, or just don't really care because when they get these influx of commits, it, which is a story, and, and they should write it, especially now when there's nothing else to cover, but they'll say, wow, Tennessee's got the number two recruiting class in the country, and man, Jeremy Pruitt's building a national championship winning program and stuff like that. Now, hold on a second. They have 21 commits right now. That is far more than everybody else. And only eight of them are four stars. The rest are three stars, right? 21 commits, only eight four stars. If this were December, which 21 is around a full class, if this were December on signing day, that class would be in the teens, the late teens even, maybe. Their average star rating is only 3.3. For context, Clemson behind them has 11 fewer commits, more four stars. They have 10 four-stars, and all 10 of their players are four-stars. Their average star rating is .6 higher than Tennessee. North Carolina behind them only has 14. Florida, 12. Michigan, 13. Southern Cal, 11. Notre Dame, 10. Georgia, 7. LSU, 9. Texas, 9. Oregon, 7. All these programs behind Tennessee have at least 10 fewer uh, commits than Tennessee. Miami of Ohio has the number 26 recruiting class in the country, only because they have 17 guys on it. So talking about Tennessee in a he's building a championship program, number two recruiting class in the country is misleading or downright irresponsible because that class is almost complete. And one, once everybody else starts catching up in numbers, it will drop, it'll free fall down to around somewhere in the teens, which is still good, don't get me wrong, but it's not what people are saying it is right now. So, yeah, he's had a really good couple of weeks and like got some quality kids, but eight four-stars and 13 three-stars is not the number two class in the country. It's not a top 10 class. It's not a top 15 class. And I just I wish context was added to this deal because it's it's so misleading. And anyway, off my soapbox. Yeah, I just I saw this on the internet making the rounds over the weekend. I just uh, I can't get that into recruiting this early on. Again, I think it's hard Tennessee to. Should be, it's freaking May eleventh. Yeah, exactly. I think Tennessee probably should be recruiting at a level like this. Ooh, I mean, you've seen it before with Butch Jones. Can you actually turn it in on the field? And Tennessee actually was a pretty good football team the second half of last year. So I don't know. It'll be interesting, you know, to kind of watch going forward because. I mean, Utah, as weak as the SEC East has been, like in comparison to the West over the last decade or so, really kind of since post-Tebow, I guess, is kind of the the time frame I'm picturing in my mind. Um, Like, if if they're able to do this and they're able to kind of – like, what am I trying to say? If they're able to kind of be the third power there, I mean, Kirby, Mullen, and then kind of having Pruitt, that's a pretty formidable three-headed monster at the top of the SEC East and will actually make SEC football a lot more compelling if Tennessee's good, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so. I just the, the East has kind of been boring the last few years, so having, as you said, just one additional competitor would be a, a nice change of pace because um, – just has not been a good division for, I mean, since really conference expansion. I mean, since Missouri won the SEC East the second year they were in the league and beyond, it's just not been a good division. So uh, I welcome Tennessee uh, getting a little bit better to make that league more interesting. Absolutely. Um, I think that's about 
really all we had today. Here's some breaking news, though, as we're recording. Five-star running back Zach Evans has enrolled at TCU. Wait, what? What? (laughs) Yeah, Zach Evans has enrolled in classes at TCU. So, TCU. Uh, Oh, how about that? What a... uh, what a saga that was. Oh, wow. Now, apparently, it's their first ever five-star, according to uh, Matt Hinton on Twitter. Whatever, man. I, I don't understand. The, I mean, the, uh, breaking news, I don't understand decisions of 17-year-olds. But like, that, what a recruitment. What a uh, twist to the end. Um, I can tell you for 100% fact, Ole Miss did not believe they were out on Zach Evans in March. Um, I do know that for sure. And still felt pretty good about it. And, uh, yeah, I don't really know what to say to this. I mean, I, would you have guessed TCU? No, I, I didn't even know they were really in the picture. But as we mentioned, like, we kind of predicted this. This kid, I mean, when you pointed out that he didn't actually have to sign an NLI, uh, we figured, we kind of predicted he's just going to show up on a campus. And uh, I, I guess that's exactly what happened here, just not the one anyone expected. I mean, I, I don't know what to do with this one. I don't either, other than it's just – I feel bad uh, for, for certain kids, and I think it applies here that he was just getting pulled in a lot of different directions, but I, that's just so funny. I mean, I remember the, the saga of, oh, he's going to Tennessee. Oh, no, he's going to Ole Miss. Oh, Florida's in the mix. And he – I mean, months later during a pandemic, hasn't been heard from and winds up at TCU. That's so funny to me. Or that poor guy that kind of had his 15 seconds of fame that I think he was trolling everyone, the, the Georgia guy. Uh, that claimed he had all kinds of information on this kid. I think that was a trolling thing that duped a bunch of people. But Yeah, man, uh, that guy was doing an Alex Jones impersonation. I, I think that, that's what it was, too. But if it was serious, I guess tough day for him. I just I have a hard time believing that any of that was serious. What, what was his Twitter account? Um, I, Ray, Ray UGA or something, isn't that right? Ray for UGA, wouldn't it? That's, that sounds catchy enough. That uh, that could pass the smell test for a rival's site. Um or a rival's message board name. Um, Andrew but, Ray UGA. Is that who that was? Yeah, it's this guy. Let's see up? what he's let's see what he's up to. He hasn't tweeted since April twenty fourth. Um, what a shame. He probably um, got sick of the stick. Yeah. But yeah, so the uh another recruiting in college takes another just insanely wild turn. But anyway, I think that's about all we had for today's solid show. We'll push the uh we'll push the uh the NFC, which game would you want to go to as a fan for Wednesday? Just because all we have is time to kill. And uh, we ended up getting really in the weeds of that MJ documentary. So we'll push that to Wednesday. Uh, appreciate everyone tuning in. i remind you one more time. If you're in the Oxford area and want to do some grilling, go check out LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. It is grilling season. The weather is awesome. I'm looking outside my window. It's another beautiful day today. Go check Greg out. He can help you throw a delicious cut of meat on the grill. Steaks, custom cuts. All kinds of sausages. The ribeye sausage kicks ass. Lane train special. Keith Carter special. Whatever you want. Greg can help you uh, decide what you want to throw on the grill. Go check out his Twitter page at LB's underscore meats. I promise you, you will be hungry after looking at it. But go check him out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Appreciate Greg sponsoring the show. Hopefully he's back on soon making football predictions. Uh, Maybe I'll try his hand at UFC. Maybe we can get that going for this week. I don't know if Greg watches UFC or not, but I'll find out and see if he can make us money doing that. But go check him out. We'll be back at it on Wednesday with the NFC uh, schedule. What game would you want to go to as a fan of each team out of the eight home games? Borky and I will be on radio. Sports Talk Mississippi 3 to 6 p.m. 
uh, every day this week as we always are, and we will catch you on Wednesday. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.